Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, joined as always by Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, now Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst for the 2019 season. And as you can imagine, we have a lot to get into about the uh, 28-14 loss at Washington over the weekend. Real quick, though, want to remind everybody, if you uh, haven't already and might be interested, we have a great promo going where we're giving a free trial through October 11th. So that takes you through all the bye week coverage and the lead up to Notre Dame. And if you like what you're seeing, stay on. We'll throw more perks at you. If you do a monthly subscription at that point, we'll tack on two more months free. If you do an annual subscription, we'll tack on six more free months. But uh, up front, no commitment. Do the free trial. Give us a try. You can hop out if you, if you want to. You can stay on. That'd be great. Use promo code USCFREE. That's USC free at sign up. And if you click on any of our stories, you'll find the link and, and the, all that info in, embedded in every story. So it's really easy to find sign up. But we've got a lot of – it's not mid-season, but it's, it is the bye week. So a lot of you know, season to this point breakdown coming during the bye. And then obviously that Notre Dame game is so pivotal coming up. But first, we have to look backwards. We have to look backwards to Washington. That's why we bring in Max Brown, our Trojan sports analyst. Max, how are you? What up, Brian? I'm doing great. Well, tough one, uh, tough one for SC. Yeah, we're, we're we're back on the descent of the roller coaster this season has been so far. Um, that was a real opportunity up there, and yep. and you know we're gonna get into all this, but just up at the top, I don't normally buy into the post game coaching comments where it's oh it's two to three plays, three to four plays, different game, because that obscures a lot of other factors that go into a loss or a win. But in this case, I think you really can look and take away, take away the three and out that leads to the punt in the short field for Washington's first touchdown. Take away the first interception, which leads to their second touchdown on a short field. And take away the interception in the end zone when USC is driving to cut it to one score. And Washington immediately breaks off the 89-yard touchdown run, makes it a three-score game at that point. I, I think this was a very winnable game for USC is what I'm saying. What was your overall takeaway watching that Saturday? Yeah, um, definitely a, a lot to unpack. I think I'm I'm with you in terms of it was a winnable game. I mean, by no means do I look at that and, and say, um, wow, they were like way better or there weren't opportunities or anything like that. But it did feel like uh, the SC just shot, got straight up beat. Like, I mean, when, when you watch the BYU game, you kind of get the sense that, okay, SC's probably the better team and BYU sure. was able to just kind of come up with some timely timely plays or um, kind of good defensive scheme and whatnot or like crafty defensive scheme. This one felt like, yeah, USC just straight up lost. And I think er, and, and those turnovers, you can always say, oh, without those turnovers, but that is football. And I, I know there's, there's kind of two, two sides to that coin. I think – if you take away those first half ones, especially um, just because it was the, you, you put UW in such good good field position, uh, the game probably goes the other way. But uh, to me, I think when I step back, I mean UW just straight up beat SC, and that's kind of where I net out with that guy. Okay, that's that's fair. That's fair. I I just uh, and like I said, I normally I normally don't like to make excuses for a loss and say, well, if this hadn't happened, or this hadn't happened. But I, I just I just felt that that the defense played pretty well. They held Washington to almost 100 yards below their season average uh, at 373, I think it was. They forced a, a big turnover. The rushing game had a season best, 212 uh, yards on the ground. There were a lot of elements that fell into place that had to happen for USC to win this game. The one that didn't 
was the offense, the passing game, especially, and the quarterback play. And I, I want to start here with kind of a, uh, a conflict and debate that's arisen since that game. Uh, as is the reflexive case nowadays with the, the tenor of USC football where it is, everyone has been rushing to just blame all of this on Clay Helton and Graham Harrell and the coaching staff. And just how do you not have a better plan for Matt Fink? You know, you know his limitations. I myself and other reporters, I've talked to several other colleagues about this, and just to make sure that my, my reaction wasn't out on a limb. And they're like, "No, I I don't understand this narrative. Like, if you watch that game, how do you not put this mostly on the quarterback play and those mistakes we we mentioned?" And fans have said. Well, the counter to that is is don't put them in that position uh, on the, on the uh, red zone interception. Run the ball there. Okay, that's great. Maybe they could have run the ball there, and in fact, they should have. That Matt Fink and even Graham Harrell said that play should have been been a run. But overall, you can't you can't honestly say in the moment that you thought USC should go into this game and run sixty times when they've shown nothing to this point that indicates they can do that. I mean, yeah, they had a good rushing day, but if they were going to commit solely to the ground, Washington is going to adjust and shut that down. You had to have a passing attack to complement it. You had to do something through the air, and it just didn't work, and that's where this game breaks down to me. Max, how much of this do you put on the coaches? How much do you put on the quarterback? Yeah, I think it, I got into it in the postgame show on the radio with the with the caller because he was complaining about that 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 play that Matt Fink throws a pick on. It was like a slant to to Michael Pittman and and uh, number three. I'm blanking on his uh, the, 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 that that nickel back. He's right there and uh, he, he picks it off and everyone's like, oh, you 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 gotta you gotta run the ball like we, we you had a great run by Step or Stephen Carr right before that. Why are we not running the ball? That is a called run. That was an RPO. It was a it was a bad play by Matt Fink. So to your point, like that's on Matt Fink. That's not on Clay Helton. I don't care if your offensive coordinators, uh, whoever your 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 offensive coordinator could be Lincoln Riley at that that time. And I mean he's I guess probably the best offensive coordinator in college football right now. I guess you could say or head coach. Even if he's calling that play. Matt Fink still makes that decision. That's on the player. So to me, that that the, I don't blame it on the coaches. What I will say is my first reaction after the game was I thought Jimmy Lake, uh, UW's defensive coordinator, he was locked in. And I thought he called a great defensive game. I thought it kept Graham guessing the whole game. And so I think if you had to pick, okay, who won that battle, I think Jimmy Lake probably outdid Graham Harrell at that, for, in that phase of the game. That's not saying, okay, Graham – did a, did a bad job. I just think that that's what Jimmy Lake's done. He's done it against Leach. That that UW defense has had so much success against air raid teams um, as of late that that's just kind of become his mo. So that 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 stuck out to me for sure. Um, so I guess there's a, a, a bit of give and take. I think that Matt Fink that last interception, like that's a, just a poor decision by him. I think you you just you you don't just throw it up there at that at that point in the game. I know it's kind of end of the game trying to trying to make something happen that kind of thing but at the end of the day these guys are coaching with your third string quarterback and I think big picture wise we we've seen in the past couple of weeks why a JT Daniels won the job out of camp in in inconsistency I mean you talk about his consistency and the other guys inconsistency the three picks by Slovis at BYU the picks at, uh this uh, on Saturday at Washington I think Slovis's picks if you had, I mean, an interception's never better or worse, but if you had to pick one or the other, I thought Keaton's picks were better than Matt's. Matt's, I mean, 
those three, those are those are those are poor decisions. Those are uh, that, that that ball should just not be thrown. Versus Keaton's, he, he kind of maybe misses a linebacker, kind of flowing that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, obviously, I think a bit of uh, back and forth. I thought Jimmy Lake did really well, and I thought, uh, I mean, you, you give those three interceptions by Fink are tough, and then the missed tackle um, in the hole by Chase Williams. That's another one that hey, that's just player. That's just hey, you gotta make sure you make that tackle. Um, that's kind of where I net out with that guy. Yeah, and, and I always offer this qualifier. Those who are on the Trojan Talk message board uh, are probably familiar with it. I, I don't want to be a Helton defender. Not, I just want to be in the middle. I want to be objective. And so I, I'm more of a defender of logic and reason when I feel it's needed. So that, that's why I've kind of come out strong in that debate. It's not the, to um, you know, obscure Helton from any criticism. Uh, there's certainly tons of valid criticism. That's, he's in this position because he's – the tone setter for the program, and and they are where they are over the last season and a half. They're they're eight and nine, so he, he deserves plenty of criticism and scrutiny. But I don't think that everything that goes wrong has to be fully placed on his shoulders. If we're if we're just talking about this one game and breaking it this this game down, I I don't attach this to the coaches. I, I now I want to go deeper in on your point about Jimmy Lake. Kind of tell us you know from your. From your QB insight, uh, I yep. What was he doing that stood out to you that was so impressive? Yeah, he was mixing things up, and that's kind of an easy thing to say, but uh, he did a lot. And I think when we step back, I know this past off season, a lot of fans were like, "Oh, Clancy's got to simplify things. He's got to allow guys to play faster and all that stuff." Okay, well, the flip side of that is when you do make your defense more simple it means you're not doing as much you're not having as mu- as much capabilities or in that kind of regard well you dubs the other side of that coin they were doing a lot they were doing cover two two man uh blitzing corner cat uh one high two high walking guys up bailing them back they were doing a lot they're putting a lot on these safeties and on these corners to to be responsible for that and the, the benefit of that is you're giving matt fink a new look every possession you're giving graham harrell a new uh he's not he, you keep him guessing on one third down you're doing this on the next third down you're doing that and on the third third down you're doing this so he doesn't necessarily know and you're never able to get into rhythm I thought that was what stuck out to me uh with this USC offense early on is they weren't able to get in a rhythm uh the first four weeks they marched right down at the field and scored this first half you got a pick by Matt Fink and you got it that that Sure, that's on Matt, but there's, I mean, they play defense as well, so you got to give him credit a little bit there. Um, but I thought he just did, he mixed it up. I thought he had some timely calls, and he continually um, kept this SC defense guessing. And uh, I was impressed big picture-wise with, with UW's man coverage. I thought they were always right there and um, made, it, made it tough on SC. And the one-on-one matchups that SC got all night long against Utah, uh, they didn't get those on Saturday. I thought it was interesting. So after the game, uh, Graham Harrell – kind of tried to paint the other picture and say, well, we knew what we were going to get. It was mostly what we expected, this and that. Then we talked to Michael Pittman and just asked, you know, how frustrating was was their approach on you? And he goes, it wasn't what we were expecting. <laughs> so it was the complete, oh, the, the complete opposite line. And, and, and maybe he was talking about a more nuanced part than just, you know, what Graham was talking about overall, you know, you know, dropping guys into coverage and, and forcing them to run the ball and this and that. But Pittman's point was, they were uh, they were pressing him and then also dropping the man uh, second defender over the top, which was different than what BYU did to him, and, and so that's kind of what he thought yep. took him out of play, personally. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, yep, totally. I, and I, I think the one thing I would add there is, I mean, Jimmy Lake does this to to most teams, and I think um, the idea of, of of bringing a lot to the table. I think the difference when a UW plays SC is they know that they are going to be. This is one of the few teams that in the Pac-12 schedule that can out athlete them, and so they have to have an element of okay, we're going to keep you guessing because they know they're at an advantage. Um, athlete, they're at a disadvantage athletically versus when UW matches up against Cal, they might be a little bit more stick to their guns because they don't have to get cute with things. So that is the kind of the one difference. But if I'm Graham Harrell, you kind of knew what you were getting with Jimmy Lake in that it could be one of many things that you're going to see throughout the, the throughout the course of the night. Yeah, and you had you had to imagine that watching that Utah game and seeing how much USC relied on on 50-50 balls and just throw and lobbing it up downfield that, that Washington was yep. going to cater its game plan around stopping that. And especially when Pittman goes for 10 catches and 230 yards the previous week, you know they're going to have a plan for him. And uh, we asked him, how many times were you not double-teamed this game? And he goes, well, pretty much only on third downs. And, you know, we had a lot of third and shorts, so you're not going to pass on third and shorts. So he was definitely and that, taking out his yeah. game for sure. And that's where I would almost disagree with you a little bit in that I'm kind of surprised. Like, if a team's doubling Michael Pittman, that should mean that, hey, other guys should be wide open. And if those other guys are Amon Ra and Tyler Vaughns, like, I got no problem with that. I almost would want, if I'm Graham Harrell, I almost want teams to double Michael Pittman because it should open up the area for other guys. Obviously, that didn't happen last game, but I was a little bit surprised walking into that game saying, like all right, they're gonna go all at Michael Pittman all game long, and shoot, maybe that's the maybe that's the the, the, the blueprint moving forward. But man, if I'm Tyler Vaughn's, like that's really when you gotta be like, yo, let's go, because uh, you can't double everyone. And it, I mean, it should have opened the day, should have opened the window for Tyler Vaughn's, and I guess it didn't. Did you see more opportunities downfield that weren't capitalized on? Um, I guess. I saw a, a Utah week or playing against Utah, those one-on-one fade balls down the sideline. SC got them early, and then so it makes it gives you confidence to call them later on in the game and then throw them later on in the game. This time, they didn't get them early. Therefore, I did not see as many yeah. called later in the game, and I did not see Matt Fink give those guys a shot. I watched the film, and there's a couple times where uh, I think Matt just kind of goes for the uh, – he either hands the ball off or just kind of goes for the underneath route when at Utah or against Utah, he chose to, hey, I'm going to give these guys a shot. There might be someone else more open underneath, but I'm going to throw it up and see what happens. And it worked out against Utah versus we didn't even see those plays a couple times. But but big picture, we didn't even see those those passes attempted against UW. Yeah, no, I definitely saw a couple of those sideline fades very well defended early and then just weren't there. Um, so – Let's. I, I know they were different approaches. It's it's simplistic to say they did the same thing, but is there anything you can draw upon from BYU and Washington to say that there's now a blueprint for how to defend Graham Harrell's offense? <laughs> I think you definitely have to have a drop eight package walking into SC for sure, um, and I think the drop eight thing's quickly becoming a, a buzzword with USC yeah. fans. But it <laughs> it I mean, it, it just means like the ability to, to rush three and have some sort of zone package where you're dropping eight guys back into coverage. You have to have a package where you're only rushing three. And I think even if that isn't what you're doing every down, you have to at least be able to go to it because SC has not been able to prove consistently that they can make big plays in the run game. And 
throughout the BYU game and the UW game when they did drop eight at times. There's only there's only that one big Stephen Carr run in the third quarter. That that's the only gash that we've seen. Other than that, teams have, teams have been able to kind of string out this USC offensive line, make them or this offense as a whole make them a little unpatient where they're not sticking with the run throughout the whole course of the series, and you're able to get away with with dropping eight. So I envision teams uh, teams doing that in various levels teams doing that throughout throughout the rest of the season the flip side of that is like Stanford they did not drop eight so that was kind of the like when you're kind of learning week to week when a team uh, watches that Stanford game it's gonna be like all right we have to have something more than what uh, what they did uh, in terms of a man only package and so so the the natural uh, question off that is is what do you want to see USC do more of to help counter that and and keep the passing game going in those situations yeah, um, it was weird. I was I I, I kind of was sitting back and because I knew I was going to get this question this week, I was like, all right. So like, what would I do if I was Graham? And I kind of was stepping back. And one thing that came to mind is SC does not check the ball down to their running backs. It's like like when you think drop eight, you think all right, everyone's getting soft in coverage. I know it's not the home run play, but let me drop it down to my running back and he'll get a few yards. Like we never see that which is totally obscure. I remember watching Garner Minshew last year at, at Wazoo, and he made a, hate, a, a living off that, where teams drop eight, they're soft into coverage, and he swings it out to James Williams or sh- swings it out to Max Borgie on time. They make a guy miss, and he goes for seven yards. It's never anything pretty, but that's one thing that I just haven't seen. And the counter to that is, all right, well, Stanford played all man, so it's just quick hitters, and we'll get the ball out there. All right, Utah – also some man there, and, and Matt Fink did great on the fade ball, so you're not really – you don't want to check the ball down. If you have big plays down the field, there's no reason to check the ball down. So, all right, I'm with you there. BYU, uh, I think – I mean, they were finding gaps with the receivers, so maybe there wasn't a need to check down. So, I mean, I'm not saying, okay, you should be playing the, running the offense to check the ball down. I'm just saying it's weird when there's a disconnect where, all right, we're going through these drop eight things, yet you're not getting the ball out of the quarterback's hands when no one's down there. So to me, I would not be surprised. I, I would be willing to bet that Mike Jenks in his QB room right now is telling his running backs to get out faster. When teams only rush three, running backs get out. Get out and stop, stop just hanging in there and chipping. Get out and be a viable option for these quarterbacks. I guarantee that's a coaching point this week and something that I kind of, when I stepped back, I was like, they really don't do that. In most air raid teams, You even if it's not like home run plays, even if it's just a few completions here or there, you at least see something. With this SC offense, we, uh, we haven't seen anything. So I look for more, uh, more of those and, 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 and an emphasis to just kind of get the ball out of the hands of Matt Fink when, 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 when the coverage is soft and things aren't open. That's a really interesting point, and you would think that that would be a way that would, uh, would really play to Stephen Carr's strengths. Stephen Carr, exactly, yeah, exactly. That was exa- um, you're talking about swinging him out, get the ball out there, and his, like, his uh, broken tackle numbers right now are like crazy. He had like one this past game. I saw the PFS stats. He had one like broken tackle this game, which was like his lowest of the season. But his numbers, even with that, are still like I think Pac-12 best or like second best. It's, it's just crazy. He's like a broken tackle anytime he gets the ball. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's the kind of area where he excels in. Give, give him a, a pocket of space with the ball in his hand and let him work with it. Um, where he struggled is when he's behind the line of scrimmage and there's nowhere to go. So I, I, I'm totally with you. That's a great point. I, I really hadn't thought about the fact that they weren't doing that more. But now that you bring it up, I, I really I can't reflect back and see how they've utilized that. 
And it's, like, it, like if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're listening to this, watch other air raid offenses and watch how much they sh- check the ball down. It's literally kind of like mind numbing because it just kind of happens and it's, oh, it goes for three or four, but it's positive yards. Like we have not seen that out of this SC offense. Well, let's. Uh, we've kind of beat around the bush, but, but, but let's go in deep on the, on the QB play. Matt Fink um, kind of had the opposite performance that he had against Utah. 19 of 32, 163, three interceptions, a touchdown, one rushing touchdown. And uh, this is – I, I want to be delicate here. This, this is kind of what my fear was if Matt Fink ever got pushed into a moment like this. And like I said last week, I, I wouldn't have expected what he did against Utah. That, that blew me away, totally surprised me, all the credit to him. But this was my fear. Uh, throws kind of lofted into perilous places, not being able to excel in, in the intermediate passing game. Like we know now that, that he, can, he, he can float the ball up deep just as well as anybody else. He, he can throw that deep ball and give his receivers a chance to make a play. But when you need to really operate with precision and and power in the short and intermediate passing game, that's where I worry, and we kind of saw it in this game. Let's go to the first interception, which came on USC's third series. I, he's looking for Drake London. I don't know if there was a miscommunication. Uh, Fink kind of threw it to the left seam. London had run past the seam. Either way, the, the, the throw was, was well past London, and there was just a swarm of defenders out there. So it was hard to see what he was even identifying on that play. Max, as a quarterback, take us through that read and, and what you saw in Matt Fink's decision-making on the first pick. Yeah, that was just a poor decision. I think he'd tell you that. Uh, that They had that play well covered. The, I mean, to piggyback on my last point, the, the right decision there would have been to check the ball down and just you probably wouldn't have got the, the, the first down. It would have been another punt, which would have been a, a tough tough spot to be in, I think, mentally. But uh, at, at that point, if you're Matt Fink, he's probably feeling a little bit of pre- like like he's used to last week where every single it felt like every series there was a big play and then now he goes out against UW it's a hostile environment he's on the road the first drive they get a couple first downs and stall out that second drive they think they go like three and out then now he's on the third drive and he's trying to make something happen trying to make a big play the right decision there would have been check the ball down you probably have to punt you flip the field it's nothing nothing fancy but it's the right quarterback play he gets caught in trying to force a throw down there trying to make something happen trying to make a, a downfield play trying to get back into this game that kind of thing and that's exactly what UW wants you to do they want you to be impatient they want you to force the issue they do not they don't want you to just let the game come to you and that 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 play was huge because it allows UW to have great field position and end up up scoring with it but uh, I don't have a reason for it it's just a poor throw he's covered all the way through I think that route was supposed to supposed to run off a safety to, to sneak in Tyler Vaughn's on a dig route on, on on that right side but the linebacker dropped into coverage the other safety's right there I mean it, it's a well-covered play should have just checked the ball down yeah and you know some of what Matt Pink was being praised for last week was oh he's, he's not afraid to take chances he's not afraid to trust his receivers yep and and the flip side of that is a play like that where it, it was uh, definitely too aggressive and y- your point about you know trying to trying to make a play make something happen the previous series they go three and out and and he gets sacked on third down they punt from from way back uh against the goal line and that gives washington the ball at the 35 and they score and then this time they get the ball at the 38 and they score or, or vice versa whatever it was but um so i understand why he felt he had to get the offense going they were definitely uh too aggressive now 
the interception that was really the pivotal moment of the game was the second pick. This comes in the third quarter. USC's down 27, and they finally get something going offensively. Stephen Carr breaks off the 60-yard run. Uh, a few more plays are down to the Washington 10-yard line. It's second and four on the 10. Fink drops back. Uh, like we said, it was an RPO. He had the choice to hand it off, chooses not to, and kind of floats one to Michael Pittman on the slant, and either he didn't see Elijah Molden from the nickel corner spot or he thought he was going to loft it over him. I'm not sure. What did you see on that read? Yeah, I think um... – Having been in the saddle there before, I think Matt probably pre-played the play in his mind, and Molden was kind of closer to the line of scrimmage, and he probably thought that, hey, Molden's going to come. I'm going to have this huge window for Michael Pittman. I'm used to hitting Pitt on these slants. I did it all last week. I'm just going to throw, step back, give give him a throw, give him a target, and fit it in there kind of thing. And the reality is, like, Molden dropped right away. This should have been a hand the whole way. I mean, there's a whole defender right there. I mean, um Matt would tell you once again, I mean, another another poor decision should have been a handoff, but it, it kind of probably gets back on, all right, last week Fink got away with some of those plays, just kind of being a backyard ball player a little bit. This week that throw, it uh, it cost him, but I think he just kind of pre-played it in his mind. I think he know, he would tell you it's probably a poor read, but uh, at that point that was a critical mistake because um, you're driving. If you score seven there after SC had been running the ball, it gets down to, I believe, a one-score game. And then uh, that pick happens, and then they, uh, UW scores right after. So, um, yeah, that was definitely kind of not the nail in the coffin because I think there was still a lot of time left on the clock, but uh, poor decision and one Fink wishes he probably had back. It, it was a backbreaker. I mean, that's you finally have some life going offensively. You score that. It's a one-score game, like you said. And now everything is kind of reset uh, to a large degree. And to go from – that to swinging all the way to a to a three score deficit because like you said two plays later Washington's uh, Salvin Ahmed breaks off an 89 yard touchdown run let's talk about that play but also I want to ask you just you know for having been on sidelines having been in the flow of a game how much do momentum swings uh factor into plays like that is, is there a chance that the USC defense went out there and just like oh my gosh I can't believe he just did that and and was a little maybe off, off its own mark and, and that that run was a that breakdown was a reaction to that in some way yeah I don't know if the breakdown was a reaction to that but I think there is an element of like uh just like you said momentum I think that's that's a huge part about football it's a huge part about any sport but especially on the road college atmosphere or college kids like they're gonna ride the waves of momentum I think I remember I tweeted in the second quarter that Marlon Tuipelotu hit uh, towards – it was kind of he, – he, he stuffed Sean McGrew yeah. and really, like, jammed him up, big hit kind of thing. You could feel the momentum kind of get back onto SCs at that point, and it was a – throughout the course of the game up until that point, the momentum had all been on UW's, uh, UW's side, and then that hit, you kind of switch the momentum. And then with a turnover, it switches back and that kind of thing. So momentum's huge. I think especially on the road, I think um, getting the momentum on your side, I think it's a reason why SC – um, had success in 2016 as they were able to kind of keep the momentum and, and execute at critical downs. But uh, as we know, I mean, momentum-filled game and those interceptions, the human party of that defense is probably going out there got like, gosh, dang it, why do we have to do this? We're supposed to score. Or, man, that was a huge missed opportunity. You start thinking about the what-if scenarios, the same scenarios we're outlining right now of, like, we would have been down a score, but now we're down two scores, all that stuff. Like, it's human nature. Everyone plays those games in their head. Yeah, and, and the game wasn't over at that point at all, but it 
it felt like it. Like from the, the press box, from the stands, it just it felt like this now seems impossible. And USC had more chances. In the fourth quarter, they get down to the Washington 2. Actually had first and goal from the 7. Can't get it in. Uh, turnover on downs on fourth down. Incomplete pass to Drake London. Then the very next series comes Fink's third interception. Again, they're, um, they, they get to the Washington 27. It's first and 10. Time's running down, though. You're, you're under three minutes. you got to make things happen. Third pick. What would you see on that interception? Yeah, it's just – I think at that point it was just desperation. Fink's trying to give his guy a 6'5", Drake London, a chance to make a play down the middle. I mean, it's just – it's not the right read, I mean, by, by, by rule, by principle. But at that point, I think he's just saying, hey, this is our last shot. I think it was like third and 10 or whatever it was. I if you go back and watch the film, I'm pretty sure he has a curl route on the outside, which probably doesn't make uh, make this any easier on the left side. But uh, at that point, I think it was just kind of a last last prayer. Um, this one, I actually at least can kind of see what he's trying to do, trying to give his big receiver a chance to go up and make a play, make something happen late in the game, try to get your team back into it. But, I mean, by by, by sheer evaluating the play, giving it a grade, I mean, it was a, a, a failing grade in terms of the decision-making, but I can at least level with uh, what Fink was trying to do. Yeah, and it was uh, it was tough post game. I mean, I, I give Matt Fink all the credit for coming to the post game press conference and uh, answering the questions and understanding why they were being asked and and giving honest answers. He, he fully admitted yep. that on the uh, on the red zone interception that he should have handed it off. And Graham Harrell later acknowledged, "Yep, that's what I would have done." But it was it was tough because he's sitting right next to Clay Helton, and, and Helton is talking about how they had a chance for a huge win, they gave it away, and their mistakes uh, took away a victory from them. And it was just kind of it was kind of a really awkward scene because it, Matt kind of bowed his head at one point as as Clay was talking, and it was just an awkward juxtaposition. But you feel bad for the kid because he's on, on the top of the world last week, and now is going to go through this week and the rest of the season or whatever, feeling like. Like he was responsible for one the pivotal loss. Take us through the quarterback psyche and and how much those things linger, both positive and negative, coming off games like that. Yeah, um, I think they they linger heavy. I think that's that's probably the downside of having a bye week this week is you're not able to kind of go out there and play and kind of get this out of your system, but. Yeah, I mean, I was. I mean, I think all quarterbacks are probably wired uh, wired this way in, in some regard. Matt's probably, uh, yeah, definitely in, in terms of. I mean, he's going to wear this. I mean, it's not one man's fault. That's the truth. That it really is a team effort. It's not just like that's not just a cliche cliche thing to say. But the reality is, like I've been there. I mean, uh, when when you throw a pick and it costs your team a, a win, you're going to wear that, and it's and it's your fault in terms of your in, in your eyes. So you better believe he's beating himself up on it. But hopefully, it's a it's a healthy beat up in terms of uh, it forces him to really go back and say, all right, why did I make that decision? What was my mental thought process in that time frame? Because a lot of those decisions are decisions that I mean, thinks made right. Like he he's done a lot of good things. So um, he'll he'll go back and learn from that. But uh, it does doesn't help and uh yeah i'm sure that 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 podium podium scene was was awkward to say the least i i, I believe that well he he may not get another chance to start this season but yeah um, true but usc even with a healthy keaton slovis only has two scholarship quarterbacks and we've already seen how quickly things can change in that spot so he may yet get a chance to redeem himself later or a chance to a situation where he needs to prove himself for the sake of the team. So his season's not over. 
But uh, we would expect Keaton Slovis to play against Notre Dame. We asked Clay Helton on Sunday night about his status. He said he still wasn't cleared. He didn't want to speculate. We'll find out more Tuesday. Uh, you, you would think having three weeks of rest would, would get him in position, but concussions are a tricky thing. I don't want to speculate either. So we'll revisit that when we have more information. Well, that's really all there is to say about about the uh, the quarterback situation coming off that game. It kind of is what it is. Let's hit on a few more points real fast, and we have some fun topics for the end of the podcast. Um, the running game, like I mentioned, it was USC season high, 212 yards. The most telling stat, though, was the the balance and and, and the, the even usage. You had Vi Malapai and Marquis Step tying for the team lead with 10 carries. Stephen Carr gets seven. Carr turns that into 94 yards, so he had the best day. But Step capitalizes 10 for 62, averages 6.2 yards a carry, by 10 for 49. Now, I want to caution people. Now, this is our this is our topic right here. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to caution people because obviously there's been a lot of dialogue about Marquis Step's usage, and you could look at that and go, "Wow, the coaches are finally giving in a little bit and making him an even part of the plan." Well. When I went deep into the, the pro football focus numbers, I saw a stat that really stands out to me and that makes me think that maybe not the case. So Step played a season-high 17 snaps, but none of those snaps were required pass blocking, according to their data. And so that doesn't mean they were all run plays. Obviously, there were pass plays, but he wasn't in a pass blocking capacity in those plays, at least by their determination. And if you look at his season totals, he has only been asked to pass block on one of his 39 snaps. Again, this is just the PFF data. I haven't gone back independently and looked at no, this. No, that makes sense. That's, that's, that sounds right. And, and, and so just the nature of this game plan, I guess, there were more opportunities to put him in there where he wasn't going to be exposed as a pass blocker, which is clearly a concern they have about him. Again, we don't see practice anymore, so I can't tell you where he's at on that. I can't tell you if he's progressing by each week. I, I just don't know. But – the assumption we make is that that's the reason why he's not getting more of a load, in addition to they really like Vi and Carr, but that's definitely part of it. And those numbers are pretty glaring. One pass-blocking snap out of 39 all season. So, therefore, I think it was game plan dictated and don't necessarily expect that every week he's going to have an even chunk of the load like he did this time. Yeah, to me, I look at that in two angles. One, it's okay, his role has kind of been, all right, you're going to rotate Stephen Carr, you're going to rotate Vi, and then you're going to put in Marquise in short yardage situations. So, like, just just how football works, it's just going to be less less, less pass concepts. And then the other side is, yes, there may be concern over pass pro, but I also think that shows probably where Vi and Stephen have the edge over Marquise in terms of, all right, when you're not pass pro, when there's a pass play and you're not pass pro, and what's the other thing? You're swinging out. You're getting in the route concept. You're doing those things, and I think that's where they like Stephen Carr and uh, and Vi. Then the other, to relating that to kind of how I open, well, SC's not really utilizing the running backs in the in the pass game, so maybe that's a whole other debate in itself. But that's kind of where I net out when uh, when, when I when I hear Marquise when I hear that stat because it does kind of make sense. It does kind of feel like that's his role, but. Uh, 
I mean, it, it just leads into the whole debate we've had is, is there, is there a world where Marquis Step deserve, deserves more first and second down reps? And uh, we could probably debate that for, for, for all, for, for the whole night. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's an evergreen debate. We can come back to it any week. So we'll, we'll leave it alone this week. I will say that I thought he was impressive. He got off to a bit of a slow start, but had a 35-yard run, had another long run, and ends up at 6.2 yards per carry, which is kind of in line with his season totals. He's at 6.9 per carry, I think, for the season. So he's the, the more they give him, the more he shows. That that's kind of how he produces. So I would be inclined to keep giving him more opportunities in whatever way they, they, they trust him. But that's for the coaches, and I don't expect it's going to change dramatically. Quick point on the defense. Um, USC was down with its top two defensive backs. Top safety, Noah Hufanga. Top cornerback, Elijah Griffin. And yet they really, they really contained Jacob Beeson. 16 to 26, 180, no touchdowns, no picks, two sacks. It was his second quietest game of the season. He had thrown for at least three touchdowns in three of the first four games. So you have to be pleased with the defensive performance overall. And as Clancy said, take away that 89-yard run, and their leading rusher has 60 yards. Well, unfortunately, you can't take it away because it was a huge part of the game. But I think overall, the defense definitely did their job and gave them a chance to win this game. Max, any just overall defensive thoughts from what you saw? Yeah, I was super impressed with the defense. Um, I mean, you talk about, yeah, undermanned, and not only undermanned, but kind of leading the guy that had led this defense. I mean, you talk about Talanoa, he's your best defense. I mean, that's yeah, a bold statement, but he, no, he's he like, is. Kind of, he, he, yeah, he is. He is. He's, he's the dude. He's the dude. And um, I thought, SC, I mean, especially going against Hunter Bryant, Hunter Bryant's an NFL tight end on the other side. I thought, I was like, man, this is the one week you need Talanoa. And, I was super impressed with the corners. They were always in position, which is another uh, thing. I mean, uh, w- uh, the biggest worry not only uh, when you have a young secondary is not only how they're going to match up physically, but are they going to be able to match up mentally and kind of on the road and assignment-wise. And they were always in position, even with uh, with Williams missing that tackle. Uh, uh, he's still right there. He's got to make the tackle, but he's at least still right there. I was impressed with Max Williams as well, his appearance. So uh, love the defense. I think EA is playing, uh, playing great against the run. I think – one thing he's probably got to be wary of is of these teams kind of play action him and, and using his aggressiveness in the run maybe against him. But for now, it, it's been it's been fine. Uh, but big picture wise, I, I was I, I like the defense and I think you kind of got used to the bend but don't break mentality in the red zone. You may have may have loved to see them kind of do that one more time in terms of all right back up backs against the wall short field. Can you come up with a stop? You probably would have liked that one more time for this SC SC defense, but. By and large, I, I was pleased with the with the the body of work they turned in on Saturday. Yeah, EA was USC's highest graded defensive player per PFF, and if you are a follower of our site, we have all the PFF snap counts and grades every week, and I go deep into the the extra data. They have a lot of cool metrics and stuff on there, and I, I kind of go in and mine whatever great notes I can find each week. So, uh, again, sign up. That's, that's for subscribers only, but you can use the free trial and get on there and see all that data from this week. Um, you mentioned Max Williams. We'll just end the, uh, the defensive talk there. He gets his first action. The four-star freshman uh, was, was recovering from an ACL injury for a year, then injured his hamstring in camp, and that really uh, undermined his, his preseason and slowed his debut this fall. We find out after the game that Greg Johnson was actually benched in the first quarter for disciplinary reasons, so that gave Max Williams his opportunity. But he comes out and makes an immediate impact. He helps finish off a sack against Eason, and he forces a fumble at the goal line that unfortunately for USC bounces the wrong way and still ends up as a Washington touchdown. 
the thing with Max Williams, and if you listen to the, this podcast back in the spring when we really talked about him, everything I heard about him coming in from his high school coach, talking to his dad just about his development, like this guy has always been a, a very heady, intellectual football player. His high school coach told me a story about how you know, he was he was so far advanced in the film study each week that the coaches would be addressing the team and saying, now they haven't shown this much, but watch out for this. And Max would chime in and go, yeah, they've done it 10 times this year and two times it's gone this way and once this way and, and was just like all over it every week. That That's why I've been so high on him and I, I want to see him play. And I thought he showed great instincts in this game. And so I wonder now if maybe that opening and the way he maximized it, no pun intended, Gives him a chance to to steal some reps from Greg Johnson, who is who has been very up and down. Has had some nice moments. Has had some not so nice moments. He's been one of the more inconsistent players on this defense. So I'll be looking to see if Max Williams gets a larger share of the pie as we progress. Totally. I think uh, in the pregame show uh, we were kind of discussing like when you go down the depth chart with with OG out and then Talanoa out. Like who's that next? I mean, who 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 was that next body? Like we kind of knew about Chase Williams, but after that, like if someone went down, like that group's yeah. really thin now. Who's that next guy? And I think that's the biggest maybe question we got answered there was it's Max Williams. So whether it is nickel or kind of where that is, probably that next corner spot, he's definitely the next guy to come in. And uh, you said Hetty. The thing that jumped out to me was just he he you, you could tell he felt like he belonged. Like he was in there. Mm-hmm. He's making things happen. I mean, there was no sense of like. Um, I don't know, just kind of deer in the headlights. You could tell he felt like, hey, this is this is my turn. This is, this is what we're doing. And that nickel spot is not always easy to to jump right in at because you're doing a lot. You're seeing a lot of different bodies. You're seeing a Hunter Bryan who's 6'3", 240, and then you're seeing a, a, a smaller slot and like a, 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 a Bocelli-type guy. So uh, I was impressed with his performance. Yeah, I mean, Greg Burns has said it's the hardest position on their defense to play. Max, you know, you could tell he was just ready for that moment. and you got, you got a feel for him. He had his entire senior season wiped out. Tore his ACL the first half of, of the first game of last season. And fights back through that. Obviously, you know, USC takes every precaution with these guys in recovery. All the ACL guys, uh, while they may feel fine after 9, 10 months, it's like 13, 14 before they're really, you know, unleashed. You still see Kyle Ford and, and Ethan Ray working through that now. And then he injures his hamstring, and after the game, you could just see the relief on his face, and he said, you know, it was kind of ironic. This was the first week that I actually felt like myself again in a long time. No knee brace, no knee pain, no hamstring pain. I just felt like me again, and that is the week that he gets his chance. So definitely curious to see what happens. Um, I do have one more point, because you mentioned kind of the lack of depth there and not knowing who's next. Isaiah Polamau has has really struggled this season uh, at safety. And, but I, there's no one obviously pushing to replace him. So I think you're going to see him work through that. I know it's been a, becoming a larger and larger point of contention for fans. Uh, he, he, I think, was the lowest graded player in the defense by PFF this week. He's just struggled. But the most logical guy to take snaps from him is Chase Williams, who has also been very inconsistent. They clearly don't have a lot of trust in CJ Pollard, the veteran. He played one snap on Saturday and has been very minimized. And beyond that, you're, you're talking about freshmen who haven't gotten on the field on defense yet. So they kind of are what they are in the secondary. Um, Max Williams now emerges as that next guy. If they're fully healthy, you have Chase Williams and Max Williams as your two guys to rotate in. So you have a little cushion to work with there. But it's still a relatively thin group overall. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, you, with with uh, Palomao, I mean, you remember his the, the interception against Fresno State? That was kind of a high point. Yeah, huge, huge point. Yeah. I mean, you'd, lo- you'd love to kind of ride that momentum, but uh, the point that sticks out to me is it's definitely he is the free safety in terms of coverage guy, and then Talano is definitely the strong safety, and that's a very obvious statement to say, but yeah. I think for a lot of defenses – that's kind of used interchangeably, and it's kind of it doesn't. You don't really notice it when breaking down the team. Like if I'm a quarterback and I'm breaking down Utah, their safeties kind of look the same. With SC, there is definitely a strong safety and definitely a free safety, and uh, maybe that's hey, coverage skills are, are stronger. But I think with uh, with Isaiah, you definitely need to uh, that that run game is where you'd you'd like to see more production out of him. Yeah, you saw him get dragged again, where, where he had a tackle and just. Just wraps up too high and just gets kind of pulled downfield a little bit. But let's leave that alone for another day. We want to make sure we have time for a couple of fun topics here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start by by posing a hypothesis to you that you can certainly debunk if you disagree. I personally think that if JT Daniels had been healthy all season, this team is definitely four and one and possibly five and zero. Oh. And obviously, you guys know who listen that I've, I'm as high on JT as, as anyone, so you can take this with a grain of salt. I know a lot of people aren't believers and will point out to his interception in the one half he played, his red zone pick. I just think that he was going to really function exceptionally well in this offense this year, and I think we saw it in that first half where he threw it 30-plus times in his two quarters for Fresno State. Had a lot of very sharp throws. Had the one bad interception. I think he was going to make mistakes, but overall he was going to really be a driving force for this offense. And I think he definitely probably plays a sharper game at BYU than Keaton Slovis and uh, definitely a sharper game than Matt Fink at Washington. Maybe they don't win the Washington game, but I think that they're they're right in it. There's a chance. And I think worst-case scenario with JT, they're 4-1, coming off a very competitive Washington loss and you're feeling pretty high entering the bye week. With Keaton Slovis, I think they're also possibly 4-1. Obviously, he lost. He was part of the loss of the BYU game with the three picks. You can't wipe that away. And we don't know how he would have fared at Washington because his only road start was that BYU game. So you don't know if there's a thing with him on the road. But I think maybe there's a chance it's different. But I just think if, if, if everything is healthy and, and good and JT plays this whole season, the the mood around this program would be so different. Max, am I, yeah. am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it, it, these are the, the, the fun topics, like the what if. I think, to me, when you were kind of outlining that all, I think I think four and one, if you have JT, I, I, I feel comfortable saying that. I think I think they still lose to Washington. And, and I'll kind of let the, level that out with, yes, Matt had some turnovers, and I've kind of been hard on him as a as a buddy and former teammate, but like he also did make some good throws, like especially bouncing back after some of those interceptions, like some tight over the linebacker under the safety, like giving guys a giving guys a, a chance to make a throw. So it wasn't like oh my gosh, what's he doing back there? This is a third string we can't operate. Like there was none of that. I was still impressed with some of his throws. Um, like uh, there was a five yard out that he's throwing on the right hash all the way to the left side of the field. That I mean, with JT, maybe if JT throws that. It, it maybe not might might not have as much gas that gets interception. So I think a lot of those what ifs kind of come into play. Um, but against B, that BYU one seems like hey, if JT's playing that, he has 13 starts under his belt. It's not his first road test. He might not be antsy. Might not be pressing that kind of thing. Um, 
that one I think SC wins if they have JT. But then, then and then the Stanford one, uh, Keaton's first start. Like Stanford's just not a very good team, as we've kind of come to realize. I think SC got it done. They did what they need to do, but that's not necessarily as impressive of a win as we thought it'd be. Uh, and then versus Utah, uh, Matt Matt pretty much played lights out. So. I don't know if JT gives you more that week. Um, no, not, not, not more. But, not uh, more. I, I think he – But, yeah, so I think net-net, I think it's 4-1 uh, and one after a tough loss to UW, and, and the narrative is probably different. And we're probably talking, Ryan, like it's a – well, this is kind of where we thought we'd be. Like you, you, you kind of do what you need to do. you got a uh, optimistic win against a Utah team, which is great. And then we lost we – knew, we knew we were going to lose to Utah or UW. Like that's kind of the, the narrative. And um, – yeah, I think uh, better position, better position if they have JT, but obviously uh, it's a what if game. Yeah, it is. It's it's it would have been fun to see how things played out at full strength, but we'll never know. And so let's snap back to reality and assess the state of the program. Where the state are, of where, the program? Where All is right. USC football now entering this bye week, Max? I'll, I'll let you lead it off, and I'll play off your off your opinions. All right, you're, you're giving me the tough role. Um, here's kind of where I'm at, because I'm sure you got the same question that I got, and it's probably over the bo- all over the boards of like, all right, is, is Helton done and all that stuff? Yeah. To me, it feels like it shouldn't be that case, but it feels like it's almost just kind of like the writing's like already be, been done, which is like, which is kind of crazy because when you step back, like there is no AD. So like in my just kind of generic athletic department knowledge that I have, <laughs> you're not going to hire another coach without an AD. Like that just probably like that just does not happen. So you have Clay Helton has time. And what does that time give him? It gives him, okay, a bye week to figure some things out. This Notre Dame team is a very, very good team. But then after that, you have a favorable schedule. You have the favorable part of the Pac-12 South, and then you that Oregon game is going to be tough. But I think Cal is 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 a good team, but super manageable. So you have a favorable run. Where right now, I mean, you flash forward six weeks, and we, SC could be a two-loss team. That's like a solid team. And at that point, do you fire your coach? Like I don't know. So to me, there's this disconnect where it feels like in my gut. The writing's already on the wall where people are kind of like, all right, like it's kind of already over. But then the other side, it's like, wait a sec. You still have a ton of talent. We've all seen this team, like when they when they want to show up, they're great. Like if things start stringing together, you if you happen to be, you almost expect a loss versus Notre Dame. But if you beat Notre Dame and then you have a favorable schedule in the Pac-12, this could be a run that like really makes some positive noise. So to me, it's like, all right, writing's on the wall. But wait a second, hold your horses because – if he really wins some games and you end up, let's say, like super hypothetical, you end up firing a coach that's whatever, I don't know, at that point, like six and two or let's say five and two, like what kind of precedent are you standing, starting for your next coach and you kind of go down that track? So I don't know. Those are my lead-in thoughts. What do you got, Ryan? Well, no one, no one objects that they have the talents. I think that a lot of people have just decided at this point that he and – any staff he puts in place cannot maximize that talent. That's that's where the the collective mindset is for most of the fan base. They've just kind of given up on on this staff getting the most out of that talent. Now, I agree with you. Not having an AD is a big factor. Um, I think a bigger factor at the moment is that USC still controls its own destiny to a Pac-12 South title. 
they they have the tiebreaker over Utah, who was their top challenger in the division. They haven't played the rest of the South teams yet, so they control all of that. So they would have to theoretically – well, it's, it's, it's in their control. So I think as long as that's in play, I think you kind of have to just stick with it out of respect for the guys on the team in yeah. this season. Like, and that, that, that's where I guess I wish there was – like. Like I, I wish it was. Like, it feels like, like as a collective fan base, you've kind of like almost thrown in the towel already. And I can hear people in the side say, "Well, Max, we've heard this before. Like we've been at this for a few years now. Like we're gonna fix the mistakes. We're gonna fix the penalties." But to me, it's like there's still so much lucrative like things to be had this season. Where like you shouldn't throw in the towel. Whatever your stance is, like there's still so much to be had. It's just kind of this weird like so many college like and it, it just. I don't know. It it, it doesn't uh, it, it it doesn't it, it feels like you're almost prematurely doing that. Like it's hey, let's have this conversation at least a month from now. Like why are we why are we putting ourselves through this like right now? And it's going to be oh well, we want we, we we hold ourselves to the highest standards. Okay, I'm with that. But okay, it's the hand we're dealt right now. We have two losses, one of which is a bad loss against BYU. But there, I, I just I don't like like the throw in throw in the towel mentality that I kind of sense within. Uh, Within myself, and I think it's probably because I, I kind of do the radio show post game, and I, I'm I'm there when when I have some of the callers, and after after the BYU game, you got a bunch of feisty callers, people that are pissed off, and then now people are just kind of over it, which is sad, and I get it, I'm not naive to it, but it just it, it feels I don't know, it feels a little premature, but maybe that's just me. Well, uh, to be honest, a lot of people have been over it for a long time. Uh, Clay lost a, a lot of. At least, at least a lot of the vocal fans who have made their displeasure known, and 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 this has all been a formality to them. It's, it's an inevitability, and so it wasn't about BYU or Washington. That just all those losses are more ammo to what they've already decided. And which, you know, which is which is sad. Like if they've already decided that, like to me, like that's just tough. And I, I get it. Don't get me wrong. Like don't get me wrong. Clay Helton benched me. Like I'm not going out here like just totally like defend them but it just there's a disconnect where i don't think that happens with every fan base where it's like oh one bad year throwing the tech like i don't know i just i i I don't like that message that that sends and i get it don't get me wrong but that's just kind of me brain dumping my my internal thoughts sure 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 and i i think what it is more than anything though is that this those fans don't want to be excited about a pac-12 south title or being in contention for that they want to be on the national level and they feel like they're far away from it and they feel like whenever they drop a game like this that's just a reminder that they are not in that conversation where this program used to be and it's one of the great things about usc football is that the standard is so high and and it's been reached enough times to warrant that that's what makes usc one of the special programs in the country it also makes it a very tough ship to to steer uh, when when you don't have much margin for error. Now, Clay has actually had a good amount of margin for error. He went 5-7 and seven last year and got to come back. So you can't say that he didn't get any kind of leeway. He did. Uh, but fans look at recruiting is off a cliff right now, and this season is, is really kind of hinging on, on this next game or the next few games. So here's, here's my viewpoint, though. No, like I was saying, no AD. As long as they have a pack of the Pac-12 South, you owe it to the players to stick with that. Like, like what are you telling a Michael Pittman, who came back for his senior year and is balling out, if you can his coach when this team still controls its destiny to the Pac-12 South? You just can't do that. 
And I, I know everyone yeah. wants Urban, everyone wants Urban Meyer, but aside from Urban Meyer and Bob Stoops, who may never come out of retirement, we don't know on Stoops, uh, you're not going to hire anybody else right now. You're not going to interview anybody else right now. Um, and, and unless you know that you have Urban Meyer in tow, and that, that's a done deal, there's not immense urgency to make a change now. Here's what yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I, I have. I, go ahead. You have a, yeah, yeah. Sorry. A, a, I'll, I'll just add one. I'll add ammo to your point or fuel to your point because I'm right with you. I do not think that Helton gets fired regular season this year, and I'll tell you why. Because what did you learn from help? Like, so, all right, with every decision you make, you should learn from it, right? What happened? What happened? In the event that things go even more south and Helton's let go, what did you learn from that? You learned that, hey, an interim head coach caught fire with the team, and that AD was put in a tough spot, whether it's, hey, do I hire the guy that everyone loves and it's the interim coach that had success, or do I go external? If you're the new president, if you're Carol Fold or, or whoever the AD is, you better believe that this go-around, they're not going to give another interim head coach a la Graham Harrell, the chance to spark up a locker room, to spark up a program, to then have, a be, have it be a tough decision in December, whether it's, hey, do we go with the 4-0 interim head coach or do we go outside and say it's not as shoo-in of a name as Urban Meyer would be, but let's say it is a Dino Babers at Syracuse or something. Like that, that sale, that tough mental decision of a hypothetical successful Graham Harrell or a whatever up-and-coming coach uh that that's something that i would be trying to prevent if i was uh the president or the ad so i'm right with you on your point there yeah i, I think carol is the only interim coach who would make that decision tough like if they, if they name clancy the interim or totally or someone else then i i don't think it's even a consideration but yeah if 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 they get rid of clay midseason and harrell is named the interim and the offense takes off over the lesser part of the schedule and you're averaging 40 points a game down the stretch when all your tough games are behind you then yeah that's all of a sudden a tough decision because you have to think that if you're passing over harrell for the job you're also probably losing him period so it's 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 a valid point you make now here's what i think clay has to do to have a chance to stay and, and i'll be honest i i think i think any new AD is significantly inclined to hire their own guy. So whoever they hire as AD is going to have to be overwhelmed by the evidence to keep Clay Helton. I, th- I think if he has any out, he's going to take it and reset the program in his vision. It's just the way things work. Now, what can Clay do? I think the bare minimum, the bare minimum he has to do to have a chance to stay beyond this year is – Assume a loss at Notre Dame and then win out, and then you're you have a nine and three regular season. You're Pac-12 South champs. How about you're, that you're, for a bare minimum? <laughs> no, I know, I know. It's, it, 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 it's it, it's not easy, but that's that's where things are at. Coming off a of five of seven last year, they can't. The, we knew all along he couldn't just show incremental improvement. They weren't bringing him back to go from five and seven to to seven and five or eight or eight and four. Like they brought him back, gave him one chance to see if he could fix this, do what Brian Kelly did at Notre Dame, show that that season was an aberration, and that you can immediately be back in the national picture in a big way, and and that hasn't changed. So that's where they're at now. If they lose to Notre Dame, I think he has to win the rest of the games, get in the Pac-12 championship game, and and see what happens there, and then maybe there's a chance. Maybe the new ADCs. Uh, m- m- momentum. I can never say that word. It's just, it's always always challenges me. Uh, sees that 
and sees that Graham Harrell has really got the offense going and you don't want to mess that up, and maybe that's the reason. Tier two is uh, to beat Notre Dame and win the Pac-12 South. Maybe you drop one other game the rest of the way. I don't, I don't know. But do those two things, and you will have, you will have uh, beaten two of your three toughest opponents. You will have won the division, and that says a lot. It'll be, it'll be, two, it'll be two, two top ten wins and a division championship. That's a possibility. Um, th- those are kind of the two scenarios I see for him to stay. And I, maybe he has to win the whole Pac-12 championship. I, I don't know. But I think at least getting there is a, a minimum requisite for, for being in this conversation. So what, what do you think happens? Let's say he loses Notre Dame. Yeah. Let's say he loses Cal, let's say. Okay. Wins the rest of the road. And Utah loses one more. They find themselves in the Pac-12 championship, and a USC upsets Washington in the Pac-12 yeah. championship, and then loses in the Rose Bowl. What do you think happens? I know I, that's I, like a total like long no, chain of events. This is this is fun. This is fun debate. But like, uh, yeah, to, the, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, okay, that, what, the, what do you got? That probably qualifies. I I, I think if they're going to lose more than one more game. They have to win the Pac-12 championship and get in the Rose Bowl. You you can't you can't have a uh, an eight and four season without a massive payoff at the end to offset it. And I think eight and four on its own is not sufficient. I, I said that but going like, into the year. Yeah, that's kind of my point. Is like with, with the with the fan base deal where it's like there's a world where like we're we're sitting in the Rose Bowl and yet like people have already thrown in the towel and I get it I get it I get it I get it but when like your alternative is like okay just don't throw in the towel and like be optimistic like let's let's hang on here that's kind of like where I'm at I don't know it's just crazy when you talk about like there's still so much on the table yet you've almost like already written the entire like way of like how this ship's going and I don't know. I, I totally get it. I'm not naive to it. It's just like it's just kind of a funny disconnect when you step back. But no, I'm with you. I think when you outlined it right there, like man, is this Notre Dame game important? Because if you win this, then like then you got all right. You got two. You went two and one down the tough stretch of Utah, UW, yeah. and Notre Dame. Like when you step back from that, that's pretty impressive. But um, I'm with you. I think a, a big part of all this is just kind of how the team looks. I think you can't afford like the terrible blowout. You can't afford like the give up game because that's that's where like people like our, as people like me and you and the fan base kind of latch onto that as like ah oh, they're giving up kind of thing. So I think that's what you definitely have to prevent. And then you gotta moving forward. You you gotta you gotta take care of business of those Pac-12 games that you should take care of. But it's just crazy to me. I mean, you talk about you step back, you're on your third string quarterback. That's not a Clay Helton thing. That's not a. That's not a. I mean, that's just football. But like, man, that is tough. That, that the third string quarterback for most of the teams in the country, you are. I don't care if you're Clemson or Alabama, you are in a tough spot. So um, it's just kind of crazy when you step back on it. But don't get me wrong. I'm not defending anyone. I get all the factors at play. I'm just trying to say everything from a from a high level view. But I guess yeah. fun conversations to have. Just final point. It's 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 tough business, and that's why these guys make millions of dollars. And if Clay were to be dismissed, he would walk away with a nice uh, a nice cushion. Yeah. So it's it's just the reality of, of that job. The, the reason why that is the case, though, uh, for for the high standards and, and what he has to do the rest of the way, is because bringing him back after five and seven is a guy on the hot seat 
has yeah. was always going to undermine recruiting, and it's undermined recruiting to a major degree. I, they are in the 60s right now in, in the recruiting rankings. If he comes back again after a eight and four kind of middle of the road season, where it's the same question next year, it's just going to prolong their struggles in recruiting. So either he has to reestablish dominance, or they have to find someone else they can sell, because you can't go three cycles. Uh, of, of, of down recruiting. And then last cycle wasn't that bad. It ended up 19th and they got some help at the end. But this one is shaping up pretty low and, and at some point that is a major factor as well. We got to go though. We're out of time. Um, we'll discuss plenty next time. But this was a fun podcast, Max. As always, thanks. That was good. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, fun, uh, fun back and forth. And uh, hit me up if you're listening. Hit me up on Twitter with any questions. It's fun uh, kind of chopping up these hypotheticals. But uh, fun episode, Ryan. Thanks, man. All right, good deal.